the choices made by young people, particularly at certain junctures of their lives, are so monumental, so influential over the rest of their days. And yet, young people have such little experience, particularly regarding how severe the consequences of bad choices can be. What it's like to live with bad choices for decades. Because of that lack of experience, many times instead of thinking through the implications of what they are doing, or seeking counsel from older and wiser people, young people take that which seems most attractive, which seems most pleasing, which seems easiest at the moment. And sometimes those things that seem most pleasant that are the easiest at the moment turn out to be catastrophic the future. Is there some way, is there some formula that we adults can use, can give to our children and to our young people that will always provide safe guidance for them? No matter how old they become, no matter what issues may confront them. Is there some formula that we can give them? Well, that is a question that has weighed most heavily on my mind as I have gone about the preparation for this sermon. Of course, it would be absurd. I hope you would agree it would be absurd to suppose that one sermon or even a whole series of sermons could teach young people all that they need to know to be safe, to make right choices. That cannot be done in a sermon. It cannot be done in church. That is the work of parents. Over years, even a couple of decades, that's what parents are about. But it is hopeful. I hope not naively hopeful. That one sermon could become a trigger by which the lessons of the years could be brought back into focus, could give to young people something to remember that would help them to remember all that they have been taught. The occasion for this whole realm of thinking is the close of another academic, another school year. More specifically, the high school graduations of some 14 young people in our church family. I don't believe we've ever had that many graduate from high school at the same time. This marks a transition of tremendous significance for these young people. In baseball terminology, it's like jumping from class A to triple A in a day. 
You're not quite in the majors, but you're only one step away. And to you young people who are closing out your high school careers and some of you looking to college and others to the workplace, you are about to move into a heightened realm of independence. And in this heightened realm of independence, what you really are inside and what you really believe in the depths of your being will be tested and proven in ways that it has not been to this point. As I said a moment ago, my desire is to present you a formula for safe direction no matter where you go, no matter what you face. Well, to be sure, if there is such a formula, it won't come from me. I'm by no means wise enough to come up with such a formula. But I am prepared to present you with a verse of Scripture which, if properly understood and if properly applied, will provide you the rudiments for safe direction for the rest of your visit in this world, however long that visit may prove to be. The verse is Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 4. And I ask you to please open your Bibles to Proverbs 22 and verse 4. Look at the words, please. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. My dear young friends, my old friends too, but particularly my young friends, I'm going to ask you to do two things this morning. Number one, I ask you to memorize this verse. It is simple. You can memorize it in the course of this service. But secondly, I'm going to be so bold as to ask you to listen carefully to my sermon. And to make note, even to write down the major points of my effort to expound this text in your hearing. Now, I'm fully aware that some of you really don't want to be here. And for sure, you don't want to listen to what I have to say. I know that. And that makes me sad. It doesn't make me angry, but it does make me sad. And I'm praying that God will profit you in spite of yourselves. But I'm confident there are other young people who really want to be here and you really want to hear. And I'm praying especially that God will help you to hear and to understand and to remember the counsel of his word. There are two rather obvious subjects in Proverbs 22.4 and we're going to address them in reverse order. The two subjects are this. First, 
as we will consider it, there is a promise of great benefits. And then secondly, there is the path which leads to these great benefits. First of all, please look with me at the promise of great benefits. They are identified by three words, riches, honor, and life. Now think about that. Are these not the qualities that we most associate with prosperity and success? Riches, honor, and life. What our text promises is prosperity in the fullest sense of that word. Now let's quickly try to understand each one of these benefits as they are defined for us in the Bible and particularly in the book of Proverbs. The first benefit promised is that of riches. Riches. Now in seeking to comprehend what this means, we must acknowledge First of all, that God often uses words in different senses, in more than one way. When we think of riches, what do we think about? Well, I, I think we tend to think in terms of Alex Rodriguez signing a $240 million contract to play baseball for the Texas Rangers. That's mind-boggling. $240 million to play baseball. When we think of riches, we tend to think of money. We tend to think of abundance of money, more money than you need for the each day that you're allotted in this world. We think of assets. We think of lands. We think of houses. We think of cars. We think of stocks and bonds. That's how we think when we hear the word riches. And the Bible uses the word riches in that way sometimes. The Bible acknowledges that there is a value in material wealth if God blesses it. Listen to the words of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 19. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. To have God give you wealth, material wealth, and then give you the freedom and the blessing to enjoy that in peace, that is a good gift from God. But in the larger framework of the word of God, God is very careful to make us understand that there are dangers in riches. That those who desire to be rich fall into snares and many hurtful lust, And that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. God would have us to understand that there are riches that are of far greater value than anything in this present world. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 13. Look at verse 7. Keep your place, of course, in Proverbs 22. But look at Proverbs 13 and verse 7. Solomon is teaching his sons, and he says, There is one who makes himself rich, gathers a lot of money, and yet he has nothing. 
And there is one who makes himself poor, and he's talking about giving away his riches to those in need, and yet he has great riches. It's possible to have money and be poor. It's possible to give away your money and be rich. There is something of far greater value than material things. Christ spoke about it even more explicitly in Matthew chapter 6, where he said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. I want to suggest to you that the truest form of riches consists in three things, three realities. True riches consist in three realities at least. Number one, heaven. Heaven. To have a place, to have a place with your name on it, in the new heavens and the new earth that God is going to create to take the place of the old creation that is defiled by sin. That is true riches. To have heaven. Secondly, true riches consist of relationships with truly good people. I'm talking about people that are not good by themselves. They're not good by themselves. But people that are made good by the grace of God. Few experiences are more excruciating than to think that your friends are good people. Only to discover much later that your friends were evil people. And their influences upon you were evil. And you thought they were giving you a good time. But when you're older and you look back, you realize your friends were wounding you and they weren't friends at all. That is an excruciatingly bad experience. But God has made some people good. And to have friendships, intimate relationships with God's people, it's one of the most priceless of all riches. One of the biggest mistakes made by young people who are privileged to grow up in the church of Christ is their failure to make good and lasting friendships with God's people irrespective of ages. You young people have been privileged to know some of the excellent ones in the earth. And you've chosen not to become friends with them. That is a terrible waste And it's a terrible loss. The most exquisite form of riches that excels every other aspect of riches infinitely is a personal relationship with the living God. That is the highest form of wealth. To have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. To be united to Christ by faith so that he takes away all of your sins and hides you from the just repercussions of your sins. And reconciles you to God so that God becomes your God and you become his. And he adopts you into his family and God is not only your creator and ruler and judge, he's your father. That's the highest of all riches. To live in 
peace with God and to have the blessing of God, to live under the umbrella of God's blessing. Solomon told his son, son, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and adds no sorrow with it. That's the highest form of riches. Well, going back to our text in Proverbs 22.4, what does our text mean by riches? Is it talking about material riches or spiritual riches? Is it talking about money or is it talking about heaven? Which is it? I believe it's both. I believe that what is promised in our text is all that God considers valuable for us. I believe that the promise of this text is that God will give us as much material wealth as he knows is good for us. But more than that, he will give us wealth for our souls. He will give us himself. He will give us his son. He will give us the Holy Spirit. He will give us truth to direct our paths. He will give us faith to believe and to walk in the light of his word. The riches that God gives to his people or at least he promises, includes the very best that God has in this world and especially in the world to come. Well, the next benefit that's promised in the text is called honor. Honor. The word translated honor here is most often translated glory. And it most often speaks about the perfections that belong to God. The glory of God. The glory of God is reflected by everything that's good in the created world. Everything that's good in this world is a reflection of the glory of God. But the glory of God is seen most in heaven. There it is displayed without any reservations or restraints. And it's blinding in its brightness and in its purity. That's the glory of God. And that's what this word, honor, most often refers to, the glory of God. But in this text, it's not talking about the glory of God. It's talking about honor for men. And how are we to understand this? God promises honor. What does that mean? Try to follow me, please. There's a most definite sense in which all of us need to resist the temptation to seek after honor for ourselves. We should not strive after honor for ourselves. At the point in which I was writing this part of my sermon, I was listening on the internet to a song, and part of the song went like this, Jesus, it's all about you, Lord. It's not about me. It's all about you. It's not about me. My son has a poster in his room. It's a, it's a poster. It's a silhouette. I may have referred to it before. Payne Stewart, the golfer who was killed tragically a couple years ago. And Payne Stewart has his finger pointed up in the air. And the caption says something like this. It is Jesus Christ. It is all Jesus Christ. I want you to know it is Jesus Christ who has changed my heart and my life. That's what it's about. We should not seek honor for ourselves. Proverbs 25:27 says that seeking honor for ourselves is not good. 
And we need to be honest enough to confess freely that everything that we are and everything that we have and all that we might accomplish that's noteworthy, it is all due to God's goodness to us. It's not due to ourselves, it's due to God's goodness. It's not our power, it's not our virtue, it's the goodness of God. Many of you just recently have gone through awards days in your respective schools. I hope you received some awards. Most of all, I hope you were qualified to receive awards, but I hope you received some. But I hope you did not have the experience of having your name called and being summoned to the front and being given an award that you knew someone else deserved much more than you. That's not a very satisfying experience. That's not an honor. That's painful. That's embarrassing. And in a real sense, we should all feel that kind of discomfort when people praise us. When people heap honor upon us, even legitimate honor, we should want to say, no, not me, not me. It's God. It's Christ. And yet, even though everything that I just said is true, God promises honor in this text. The promise is really this. God promises to make people honorable. He promises to work in their character and to work in their conduct in such a way that they become honorable. And then he promises to attract the attention of other people to them so that other people see their virtue and acknowledge it. God makes people good. And then he causes other people, both good people and bad people, to notice and to respect what he has done. In another place, Solomon said, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. It's an astounding thing to me that God causes human beings to be honorable and then to receive honor. That's incredible. We're sinners. We're sinners. Nobody knows that better than God. That God would make us honorable and then cause people to give us honor. That's incredible. In Psalm 84, verse 11, I'm sure some of you have memorized this verse. It says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from him who walks uprightly. Notice those words. The Lord will give grace and glory. He will make people good by his grace, and then he will give them honor. That's a work of God. Now, if that ever happens to us, if we ever receive honor, what are we to do with it? We're to do exactly what the psalmist did in Psalm 115 and verse 1 when he said, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy and your truth. The third benefit named in our text is life. Riches, honor, life. The word life here signifies that which is alive and thriving 
could be used of a green tree. It's not wilted. It's obviously a flourishing tree. Or it could be used of pure, clean water babbling in a brook. It exudes the sense of being alive. Or it could refer to a young child playing in the meadow, running and laughing, vibrant and healthy. Most often in the book of Proverbs, this word life is used to refer to a long, abundant life in this world. It refers to a life of health and safety. It refers to a life of loving and comforting relationships. It refers to a life of productive and satisfying labor. Look at a few texts. Turn quickly. Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, verses 1 and 2. Now, I'm tempted to qualify this and say it's not absolute and there are exceptions. And all that's true, but I don't want to qualify it. I want you to read it as God caused it to be written. Proverbs 3, 1 and 2. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands for length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. And there's no qualification here. Length of days, long life, and peace they will add. Chapter 4, verse 10. Hear, my son, receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. Chapter 9. Go to chapter 9 quickly. Verses 10 and 11. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me your days will be multiplied, and the years of life will be added to you. Is there anybody here that doesn't want to live a long time? Any of you young people like to die soon? A long life under the blessing of God is an enormously good gift. And that's what God promises. You say, but, but I know. Yes, I know. There are exceptions. It's not absolute. But, beloved, you meet the conditions. And God will keep his promise. And yet, if all the life we have is consumed in the brief amount of time we have in this world, brief at best. If what awaits us at death is separation from God and the endurance, the infliction of his anger toward us and our sins, then life at its best is of little worth because very soon it's going to be over. And very soon we're going to be irreparably miserable. The best part, the best part of the life that God gives is an eternal enjoyment of himself. It's not just an unending existence. An unending existence can be miserable. It could be eternal misery. No, it's an, an unending enjoyment of himself. That's eternal life. An enjoyment that nothing can take from you including death. In Proverbs 14, 27, we have these words. Listen. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life 
to turn away one from the snares of death. Well, I hope you can see that what is described in this verse, these great benefits, they're everything that we could ever legitimately want for ourselves. They're everything that parents could ever want for their children. What more could you ask? Riches. The possession of everything that would be valuable and good in this world and the world to come. Honor, personal integrity, and the recognition of that integrity by other people. Life, a long, abundant life in this world and the enjoyment of God for this world and the world to come. What more could you want? That's true prosperity, and that's what's promised in this text. And that's what I want for every one of you young people. This is what I want for you. I want riches for you. I want honor for you. I want life for you. Now, how do you get there? Well, the most important part of the text has to do with the path that leads to these great benefits. Go back to Proverbs 22.4. The path which leads to these great benefits. The first thing that you must understand about this path, it's not a matter of earning these benefits. It's not a matter of doing some works that will entitle you to these benefits because the caliber of your works are so good and so great that you deserve them. That can never be. Never be. The benefits are too high. We're too lowly, too weak, too sinful. We can never earn them. All of these benefits are the gifts of God's grace. God gives them freely. And the most essential factor in obtaining these benefits is to have the grace to believe on Jesus Christ. All the promises of God are stored up in Christ. If you believe on Christ, you are united to Christ. And when you're united to Christ, you have access to all the blessings of God. The most essential factor in receiving the goodness of God The eternal goodness of God is to be in Christ. But I must be honest with you. Not everyone who believes in Christ enjoys these benefits to the extent that this text promises them. Not every Christian has these things to the extent that they're promised in this text. You see, the grace of God is free in Christ, but there are some aspects of the grace of God that are conditional. They are conditional. And if you're going to have those aspects of the grace of God, you're going to have to go to God for the grace to meet the conditions. And these promises are given in the light of two conditions. We might think of them as a two-track path, like a train track that leads to these promised benefits. And if we're going to make progress toward these benefits, we're going to have to move along this track. And we're going to have to be on both rails of the track. If we fall off either rail, we're going to be tremendously impeded like a freight train trying to move down the track being on only one rail. It's not going to happen. We'll look at the twofold track. By humility and the fear of the Lord, 
our riches and honor and life by humility and the fear of the Lord. The first rail is called humility. Repeatedly, Solomon tells his sons that humility is the path to God's blessing, whereas pride is a path to destruction. I want you to listen. I want you to consider. It would be good for you to turn. Turn back to Proverbs 3 and look at verse 34. Proverbs 3, 34. Surely God scorns the scornful. He abases the proud, but gives grace to the humble. To the humble. Proverbs 15, 33. Proverbs 15, 33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. Now listen. And before honor is humility. Before honor is humility. Proverbs 18, verse 12. Proverbs 18 and verse 12. Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty. Before a man is destroyed, he's haughty, he's proud. And before honor is humility. Proverbs 29, 23. Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Beloved, you can go to the bank with this. You can go to the bank with this. If you become proud, if you are proud, God is against you, and God is going to bring you down. God shares... The spotlight with no man. But God loves humility. John Piper says that God can't resist humility. What is humility? Some of you are probably thinking about certain people who carry themselves in a certain way. You say they're humble people. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. Humility is not something outward. Humility is something inward. Humility is an attitude of heart. It's an attitude of heart in which we see ourselves realistically in terms of what we should be and in terms of what we actually are. There's nothing manufactured or artificial about true humility. True humility is not something we pretend to be. It's not a matter that we are really great and wonderful, but we have to pretend to be lowly. No. Genuine humility, my dear friends, is brutal honesty. Genuine humility is complete, naked honesty. Humility doesn't come from what other people say about us or what we want to think about ourselves. Humility comes from looking at ourselves in the mirror of God's Word. You open the Bible and that becomes your mirror. Never forget, never mind the mirror in the bathroom. We see there pretty much what we want to see. Now look in the mirror of the Bible. And look at yourself in terms of what God says about you. And that is humility.
that will produce humility. Humility, as I said, is a heart attitude, and it is comprised of five dimensions. And if you want to be humble, you need to plead with God to give you these five dimensions. I'll name them quickly. First, humility consists in embarrassment. Do you like to be embarrassed? Well, that's what humility is, fundamentally. It's embarrassment. Sadness and shame before God. We think of what God created us to be in Adam. He gave us pure hearts. He gave us hearts to love him and to love holiness and to live well to his glory. And then you look and see what we've become. Lovers of self and lovers of sin and lovers of the world and haters of God. That's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to see what we have become. It's embarrassing to think about what we've done. Our secret thoughts, ideas we've had, perhaps even here this morning, the thoughts that have crossed our minds, the things we've done in secret, perhaps what some of you young people did last night. It ought to embarrass you. Humility is embarrassment. Secondly, humility is dependency. Dependency. Utter and complete dependency upon Jesus Christ. Humility is an attitude that says, when I look at myself, I see nothing but shame. I have no hope except in Jesus Christ. I have nothing to offer God. All I can do is throw myself upon the mercies of God in Christ and trust and plead that he'll take away my sins and make me acceptable to God. Humility is living a life of dependency. Never thinking yourself sufficient for any good work, but trusting Christ and relying on Christ and believing that Christ will make you sufficient. Thirdly, humility consists in thankfulness. Amazement and profound gratitude at all the goodness that God has heaped upon us. In light of what we are and what we've done, God has been so incredibly good. The wonderful promises that are freely given to us in Christ. I will pardon your transgressions and I will heal your diseases. <clears throat> Open your mouth wide and I will fill it with good things. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I will work everything together for your good. Who are we that God should say those things to us? Profound gratitude coupled with a sense of undeservingness. Fourthly, humility consists in submission. Submission to God. Out of a sincere and loving gratitude to God and out of a profound delight in God and in all that God has given us in Christ, there is a sincere submissiveness to God's will. Whatever you want, Lord, I want to do it because you're so good to me. You're so satisfying to me. You fill my soul with good things. I want to please you. An unbegrudging obedience to God. That's humility. And finally, humility is contentedness. Contentedness. Not contentedness with the progress that we have made toward being holy and godlike. We're never content with that. But contentedness in whatever condition, in whatever place, in whatever work God assigns to us. 
Now, some of you young people, it's going to take you a long time to find that place. But you'll find it. God will direct you into that place. And once you're there, if you're humble, you will embrace it. And you will say, thank you, Lord. I never, would have, I never would have designed this for myself, but this is where you brought me, and I'm content because your will is perfect and you love me. Thank you. How does humility show itself? Well, humility shows itself by meekness and gentleness and kindness to other people. But humility, as I said earlier, is not essentially outward or manward. Humility is a hard attitude toward God. Embarrassment, dependency, thankfulness, submission, contentedness. My precious, precious young friends, you must have humility. If you're ever to arrive at the blessedness of the life that God promises in this text, you're going to have to be humble. And perhaps, perhaps we as your parents have made humility very difficult for some of you. It may be that in our love for you and in our zeal to encourage you, we have unintentionally promoted in you thoughts of pride. Pride leads to destruction. Perhaps we have made humility particularly difficult for you. If we have done that, we have sinned against you. Please forgive us. What we would want to say to you now is this. Don't form your opinion of your condition before God from what we say or from how you seem to measure up in comparison with other people. Form your opinion of your condition before God by an honest confrontation of what the Bible says about you and how you relate to what the Bible says. The second track of the path the second rail of the track, I should say, en route to prosperity is the most important by far. It's the key to humility. It's the key to all good for those who believe in Christ. It is the fear of the Lord. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. This is the most important and I have so little time to say anything about it. I will try to be brief. I ask you to give me just a few more minutes. It's the most important part of what I have to say. What is the fear of God? Essentially, a proper fear of God is a heart's response to all that God is for us in Christ. It's a heart response to all that God is to us in Christ. To fear God rightly is to have God as the biggest thing in your life. 
Now, if you believe in Jesus Christ, there is no terror in the fear of God. If you believe in Christ. Now, if you don't believe in Christ, and some of you don't, and you don't have a mediator with God, I want to be honest with you. If you don't have Christ as your Savior and your mediator, there is no word in human language to define the terror that ought to fill your heart at the thought of God. But if you believe in Christ, he's taken away the terror because he's taken away your guilt and he's taken away the condemnation and he has satisfied the holiness of God. And there's no terror for those who believe in Christ. Instead, the fear of the Lord is a captivating, consuming awe that causes us to tremble and to rejoice at the same time. We tremble and we rejoice at the same time. Sinclair Ferguson defined the Christian's fear of God in this way. He says it's that indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, pleasure, joy, and awe. Do you get those things? Reverence, fear, pleasure, joy, and awe, which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what God has done for us. Now, there are times... When a proper fear of God on the part of Christians will mean that we're afraid. And some of you may be trying to escape the idea that Christians should ever be afraid of God. There are times that we ought to be afraid of God. John Murray said, and he said it rightly, It is the essence of impiety not to be afraid of God when there is reason to be afraid. God is holy, absolutely holy. Sin is always a great offense to God. And whenever we have sinned and we know we have sinned, we ought to be afraid. Some of you may remember reading or having your parents read C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in that book, the question is asked about Aslan the Lion, is he safe? And the answer is given, of course not, but he is good. Is it safe to flaunt sin in the presence of God? No. You say, but I'm a Christian. Still isn't safe. Still isn't safe. God has a rod. And when we sin and we try to cover up that sin with excuses and ignore it, God is not afraid to take out that rod. And none of us want the rod of God's chastening. But if we fear him correctly, we will know that God is good. And that if we confess our sins and repent of our sins, trusting in Christ, God's goodness will take away our sins, and He will forgive us, and He will wash us, and He will make us clean. As I said earlier, my dear young friends, more than anything, I want you to prosper. I want you to have riches, and I want you to have honor, and I want you to have life. But that will never happen until you learn the proper fear of God. Until God becomes the biggest thing in your life, because he is the biggest thing in your life. 
And everywhere you go, you're conscious of God's presence. Every thought that passes through your mind, you think God hears that. Every word, God hears that. Every act, God sees that. There's no place to hide. Where shall I flee from your presence, O Lord? The proper fear of God is to know that he's awesome, he's great, he's holy, he's good, and he's everywhere present. The best description of the fear of God that I've ever encountered is in a book by Jerry Bridges entitled The Joy of Fearing God. Now, I wanted to read the story that he told. I don't have time, so I'm going to try to give it my own words. Bear me out. If you will follow me to the end, I think you will have an accurate depiction of what it means to fear God rightly. Jerry Bridges tells the story about a young man graduating from high school. His name is Butch. Strapping young man, 6'2", weighs 200 pounds. He was an ensign linebacker. High school football team, he loves to hit people. Very much attracted to the Marine Corps, the physical, robust reputation of the Marine Corps. So after graduating from high school, in spite of having good grades, he was attracted to a recruiting Marine sergeant. He liked the idea, we're looking for just a few good men. He thought that he fit the description, so he joined the Marine Corps. He wasn't really prepared for what he was going to encounter in boot camp. He was particularly not accustomed to the humiliation. And Bridges opens the story with Butch standing before a drill sergeant who is calling him a stupid imbecile and a few other things. Because in parade march, he had gotten a little bit out of step. And the drill sergeant is four inches shorter and 40 pounds lighter, but Butch is trembling. Just a few days before that, in drills, they, he was holding up his rifle straight out in front of him. He always thought he was very strong, but after a little while, his arms could not sustain the rifle, and they fell to his side, at which he was berated for being a wimp. Well, after a time, he began to learn that you have to submit to authority in the Marine Corps. You have to do what you're told and do it immediately. And he began to adjust, and he began to thrive, even in boot camp. But then just before graduation from boot camp, something unprecedented happened. The general in charge of Marine uh, training over that boot camp, before parade day and graduation day, he announced he was coming into the barracks. He was going to take an unannounced tour of the recruits who were about to graduate. And Butch could see it in the, the eyes of the drill instructors. They were scared to death, and they whipped everybody into shape, cleaning their rifles, polishing their shoes, tightening their beds. And Butch remembers. He had become very confident as a Marine, but this general walked through. And he came to him with his steely eyes that seemed to look right through him, and Butch trembled. And he asked him a question, and his mouth became like cotton, and his voice broke. Well, he graduated. He went into the motor pool, and he became a driver. Because he was conscientious, he was promoted, and he became the driver of this general. 
same general that had frightened the daylights out of him. He became his personal driver. And as he was driving him around, he had the occasion to see the general up close and to listen to him speak to other people. And his sheer terror of the general soon became something more than terror. It became awe. You begin to realize what a wise man this man was. As he taught, he had incredible knowledge, incredible understanding. And people were always helped. And their spirits were always uplifted. He noticed that. And this terror became awe and respect and even reverence. Well, they were both promoted. Butch becomes a sergeant. The general becomes a major general. And they are sent overseas to a battlefield. Now, Butch is safe from direct fire because he's driving the general around, but there's still danger. And one day they cross a landmine and the car is exploded. And the major general is thrown out of the car and severely injured. And Butch is left in the burning car, unconscious, strapped in. Sure death. And somehow the major general, in spite of his injuries, struggled to get to Butch and was able to deliver him from the burning car. And they were both flown to a camp hospital. In a matter of days, the major was able to resume his duties, but Bunch, Butch was hospitalized for weeks. And over those weeks, he was amazed. The major came to see him, not just once, or twice, repeatedly. And as Butch thought about this, he was astounded. First of all, why would a major risk his life when he has a whole battalion under his charge? Why would he raise, waste his life to save a lowly sergeant? And why would he visit me? And Butch soon began to realize that the major had a very strong affection for him, that the major cared for him deeply, and he in turn began to care for the major in a very deep way, and he's gone from being terrified of this man to being filled with awe and respect to having a deep affection. And he determines, if I'm ever able to drive for him again, I want to. I will be the best driver that any major in the Marine Corps ever had. And they became lifelong friends. But there was always this aura of respect. The major was the major. Butch was the sergeant. He always dreaded disobeying him, incurring his disfavor. But he always loved him, and he wanted to be in his presence. Beloved, as I said earlier, that's the best description I've ever heard of the proper fear of God. It goes from terror, and then awe and reverence and admiration is added, and then there is warm affection and a sense of closeness, and they all reside together in our heart's affections for God. My dear young friends, if you're ever to succeed in the proper and truest sense of the word, 
you're going to have to learn the fear of God as I just described it. May God help you. May God help you. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy of all admiration. You are worthy of our deepest awe and reverence. And there are times, Father, that we ought to be afraid of you. But fundamentally, in Jesus Christ, we ought to love you. And we, we ought to be deeply, deeply impressed with your enormous goodness. Why would you love us enough to send your son to die for us? And why would you so patiently attend to our needs, to the wounds that we have opened by our own transgressions? Why is it that you never forsake us or leave us? How good you are. Father, you are the biggest thing in our lives. Help us to understand that. Help us to learn to frame all of our thoughts, all of our words, and all of our actions as being in your presence. We pray for our children. We pray for our young people, Father, that you would teach them the proper fear of yourself, that you would teach them humility, and that by humility and the fear of yourself, that you would bring them to riches, to honor, and to life. Have mercy on them, Father, for your name's sake. Amen.